Welcome to Man Talk, the podcast that's normalising the conversation about men's mental health. I'm your host, Jamie Day, and you can find me on Instagram at a day in the life dad, and you can hear more about my own mental health journey in series one of Man Talk. This show is made in support of the Movember Foundation, who are changing the face of men's health and fund life-changing and groundbreaking mental health projects around the world. You can read more about these over Movember.com. Man Talk is sponsored by Mojave's, who produce footwear for time well spent. Anyone who knows me or has followed my journey online will know how much I love the brand and their products. Their messaging really promotes me time, unwinding and self-care, which we all know with the challenges of everyday life is so important for our mental health. So thank you, Mojave's. In this episode of Man Talk, I meet with Dan Keeley in London. Dan is a mental health activist, a keynote speaker and the founder of Are We Okay? You'll hear about his incredible story, which will leave you inspired by the journey he's been on. From preaching in the middle of an Italian motorway and being diagnosed with bipolar in 2012, to five years later, returning to Italy and then running alone to London over 65 days to mark his incredible progress. Here's Man Talk. Dan. Jamie. Nice to meet you. You too. Great to be here in uh, <laughs> cloudy Vauxhall. Could be worse. <laughs> it's nice. Nice surroundings. Um, so we're here today and we're going to talk about your journey from uh, being diagnosed with bipolar. Yeah. Uh, your journey that then took you to run from the Colosseum in Rome to London Eye. As you do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people do that. Yeah, well, I mean, um, and you're campaigning on to where you are now with your talks. Dan Keeley, the speaker. Yeah. Um, and just, your, yeah, just talk about your, your journey of mental health and what's got you to where we are today yeah, here, awesome. here in Cloudy Vauxhall. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, firstly, yeah, it's awesome. Jamie, I love what you're doing. Man Talk is so important and relevant right now. So, yeah, great Thanks. to be here. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, the, well, the, the story really starts in 2012. But anything before that, basically, you know, super creative, passionate, sporty, you know, just first one to sports training, last one to leave, amazing family, you know, great old brother and sister. Um, yeah, just always sporty, really creative in one form or another. And then um, it, we, we can come back to kind of were there any warning signs before 2012? as to whether you know there was something a bit off maybe with my mental health right and you know hindsight's a wonderful thing which we can come back to but the story really starts in january 2012 um you know i've always been passionate about social impacts you know my biggest fear in life is getting to the end and not positively positively impacting as many people as i possibly could with the gifts that i know i've got um that's it and that's my driving you know that's my uh, north star um so in january 2012 um having had a background in sort of sports development you know this craving to do social impact work i got offered a job at as a uh, community manager for a snow sports charity that snow, changes the lives. Snow sports charity, yeah. they? They're called Snow Camp. Right, okay. And uh, they take inner city kids out to the mountains and completely change their world with the power of skiing and snowboarding. It's amazing. Um, you know, and everybody was saying, no, you know, this is this is written for you. Um, you know, I certainly felt the same. You know, I, you know, I just started this job and I felt like, wow, you know, I've been really searching for this. And I felt like this huge weight got lifted off my shoulders. Mm. And, you know, if you think this is passion and energy now, um, <laughs> sorry, there's some guys walking past us with mattresses, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's not what I've done them over so um yeah you know i started at this job and i felt like this huge weight got lifted off my shoulders and with that came this huge release of dopamine and adrenaline and really um the start of the journey properly jamie where i just stopped looking after myself right okay in terms of what kind of physically or you know yeah or just look, not looking after your mental well-being or your yeah. physical well-being or do you it? know what i just got so obsessed with positively having an impact on these young people right that 
the thought, yeah, exactly. So the thought of you know spending two hours in the kitchen to cook a nutritious meal just seemed like a waste of time. These kids are suffering right now. I know that my, you know, all these new events and partnerships and community stuff I was building could help these young people. And you know, I just I just started getting obsessed with that social impact. And you know, my, my amazing wife Georgie, she's been with me throughout this whole journey. And bless her, when I think about that chapter, it was it was not nice. You know, the same for my family. You know, I just wasn't really sleeping. Right. Um, I wasn't really exercising. I just wasn't looking after my nutrition whatsoever. So you, you were talking about being obsessed. What what level were you taking things to? What were you actually doing? Yeah. On a day-to-day basis that. Yeah, you know, would be classed as this obsessive. Yeah. Had. Well, my uh, 2012 was split into two halves. So everything between January and June that year, um, I was just getting so obsessed. Whereby, you know, I I was just trying to go to bed at 10 p.m., 11 p.m., whatever, and I had about two hours sleep, and then I'd sneak out of the bedroom, go into the lounge, and I just had to gre- I had to get these ideas out of my system. And then Georgie would wake up in the morning, getting ready to go to work, and the whole lounge you could barely see the floor because right. there were just you know, some people have seen carrying homelands, for example, where there's just streams and streams of paper okay. and creative energy pouring out of me. And I had I had to get this stuff out of my system. So I felt just like, noting it down. Yeah, paper. I was just noting it down right. and you know, on you know, any interactions I was talking too fast, I was making all these connections with high end business people thinking we're gonna change the world together. Right. And, you know, to fast track through the journey, you know, I basically went, Jamie, from having this obsession to have this positive impacts on these young people to then thinking, you know, if I'm going to have that kind of effect, why wouldn't I try and apply that to society as a whole, as a whole? And then if I'm going to go that far, why would I not try and change the world? Wow. So we put this two week holiday out to Italy in June. And, um, in the lead up to that, I genuinely started believing I was the next Mark Zuckerberg really? driven by social impact, the next Steve jobs. And by the time we got out to Italy, I genuinely believed I was the chosen one. Really? But I mean, when you say you genuinely, genuinely believe, what what's happening inside your in your head to make you believe that? Yeah, so it wasn't there weren't any delusions. You know, a few people said, you know, were you seeing things that weren't there or whatever, and it wasn't like that. It was almost like, um, you know, and anybody listening to this, I don't want to evangelise these feelings, but you know, it's like Red Bull pumping through your body. You know, so every sense was on overload, and and it felt like I was kind of working, working, working towards this point of singularity, this answer that was going to ease all of the world's suffering. And you know, it's just this grandiose illusions. I was giving away money I didn't have, uh, making promises. So, so who, charities or yeah, so. Uh, you know, I was, just, I was just basically like, you know, buying stuff I just really didn't need in the UK, which I thought was going to help towards my cause. And then we're, we're flying out to Italy and we get to the hotel and get this. So I, I, you know, when Georgie's down by the pool um, at this lovely hotel run by this family in Italy, I, I basically kept going up to the bar and buying a bottle of wine to give to every single hotel room in we were staying with. So I was just giving away my possessions. I felt I just don't need, you know, I just want to give everything of myself to humanity. And obviously all the alarm bells were really going off at this point. How many hotel rooms were there? <laughs> um, it was a, a lovely rustic half developed hotel. So I think there were 20 rooms that I right. bought a bullet wine for. And you can imagine the, the smiles down at breakfast the next day. Yeah. But by this point, you know, Georgie's called, you know, my mother and her mother to, to come out and be with us because, you know, something was going severely wrong. Had you and your wife spoken about it? Yeah, no, I mean, it was just, you know, when I think about that chapter, even even I kind of winced at the person I was becoming because pretty arrogant, pretty pretty egotistical, you know, pretty self-centered actually when you when you think about it. But it was kind of disguised by this, you know, social impacts and all the rest of it. So it was just this mess. Right. Um, and I think, you know, we, we hadn't really addressed it, but Georgie, I know, leading up to that two-week holiday to Italy, you know, was speaking to my family and friends and, you know, something's not right here and he's just going so fast. Um, and everybody was telling me just to slow down and 
you know, relaxed when we were out there in the lead up to the holiday. Um, but, you know, we can talk about what life is like with bipolar, but it's almost like being a Formula One car and my foot was firmly planted on the accelerator and I just was not listening to my pit crew, my dream team. I was just going at 200 miles an hour. Wow. Oh, wow. I know. And so for the rest of the holiday, what kind of happens? Any, any other <laughs> sort of instances of extreme yeah. generosity or? Yeah, well, you know, all the alarm bells are going off. Uh, Georgie's making arrangements for her mother and my mother to fly out to be with us because something was severely wrong. Yeah. Um, the hotel helped Georgie find a psychiatric hospital about an hour and a half from where we were. So we packed up the car, Fiat 500, obviously, we're in Italy. Classic. So we're driving over there and this compulsion to get this energy out of my system was getting too much and I had to do something about it right now. Um, so we pulled over on this hard shoulder, this motorway, it's five o'clock on a Friday evening in northern Italy near Lake Garda, rush hour, pull over on the hard shoulder, scramble out the car, start walking down the hard shoulder, stripping down to just my khaki shorts, barefoot. Um, and then I start jogging down the hard shoulder and then I start putting my hands up slow lane middle lane fast lane and there i was stood in the middle of this major motorway wow. in northern italy and i had my arms outstretched and this kind of these tears were just pouring out of my system because i i just had basically i got to the point where i figured the best way the best demonstration i think at that point to ease all of the world's suffering at that time was to encourage or, or give a demonstration to the world to slow down and follow our hearts right and the irony of course is that I was going at a thousand miles an hour. So you weren't running onto the road in an attempt to end it or anything like that. No, far no. from it. It was a. It was the opposite. Different, yeah, yeah. It was to it was to it was to uh, ease as much of the world's suffering as I possibly could, and you know, it's just it was just kind of you know six months of this dopamine and this adrenaline, these endorphins, just going up and up and up, and it was just left unchecked. Right. And um, you know, there's no traces of this in my family or anything, so this was just all new. You know, we didn't know what was wrong, and even the police officers and the ambulance team they show up, and you know, they're asking Georgie, "What? You know, what? What, what the hell is this?" And uh, you know, even Georgie didn't know. And so, you know, the only thing that we could do was to get me to uh, the psychiatric ward as quickly as possible. So you were taken straight off the road and bundled into the car and yeah. straight down there yeah strapped into the back of an ambulance fast track to the uh, hospital um, and get this I was trying to recruit them to be my head of security chief medical officers I was really trying to get everybody to come on board with this vision and then they basically locked me in a room strapped me down to a bed and then they just start pumping me full of drugs just to make me slow down and sleep and eat and slow down and sleep and eat enough to sedate a sumo wrestler you know wow. skinny guy i lost so much weight over that period and you know then came you know two weeks out in Italy and then flown back to the UK another two and a half weeks in the Maudsley in South London the diagnosis of bipolar disorder and that really kind of starts the second chapter of 2012 but you know that whole period it's it's not it's not easy to talk about but I have to talk about it mm. as it's we know it's part of your journey oh it's massive it's yeah. massive and so was that the peak that was the kind of peak of where you got to yeah. your dis well that's where it, it, you know we eventually get to the hostel and you're diagnosed with it yeah exactly so you know on on paper I guess you know I went from having a hundred percent belief conviction in every single atom of my being you know every thought i had every word that was leaving my lips i was convinced this is it this is the answer and then throughout those you know five and a half weeks i started really questioning that i was just confused i was like why am i on this ward you know we're supposed to be at the coliseum setting up our new headquarters you know it's all these kind of grandiose delusions and that conviction so suddenly having zero belief and trust in my thoughts right and I couldn't trust my mind. My mind almost played this huge, dirty trick on me. So you've gone from like being so confident, so passionate, and so, you know, 
aware of your own thoughts and your purpose to zero, pretty much? Zero. Right. And I felt, I felt like, you know, scum of the earth and just an embarrassment. And, right. you know, I just, you know, when I, you know, it's getting jittery now, but when I think about the next six months over the, you know, the back end of 2012, I was, I was bed bound. I was suicidal. I, you know, I, I got pretty close to taking my life. Um, but, you know, amazing people around me, medication, talking therapy, you know, I was critical. So I was having it almost daily, right. amazing family. And, um, but it wasn't easy, you know, it was, it was, it was the darkest time of my life. And, you know, to, to have gone from, you know, that, that, that build up of energy and that conviction to then just disconnecting from the world and just hiding in bed. Well, I couldn't hide, you know, I was just debilitated. I couldn't even walk two meters to brush my teeth because the weight of the weight of that depression, yeah. you know, crashed down on me like a ton of bricks. And, um, you know, I always talk about the Formula One analogy and I went from, you know, feeling like I was hitting every apex like S in center. Mm. And now I'm on the, I'm in the gravel, my chassis is broken, my gearbox is broken. I don't even want to speak to my team and I'm just in the gravel and I, I just wanted to, I wanted to take my life. I just didn't really? want to be here anymore. Yeah. So I think a lot of people with bipolar have this assumption you're up and down sort of every 10 minutes. In terms of timings, you obviously had an up for six months. And then how long did the, the down last for? Um, yeah, I mean, it's different for everybody. So for me, that, that down was, um, it, you know, it, I, I was, you know, I was broken for six months. Right. Um, you know, but then in the years to follow and, and even speaking to you now, you know, I really have to manage bipolar really well. And, you know, for me, my mood escalates over, it's almost like this, it can be like a weekly build up, you know, if I feel my energy escalating and, and the reverse, you know, I'm, I'm getting ever better at recognizing when my mood dip. But, you know, anybody who knows anybody with bipolar, it's completely different for everyone else. And throughout my journey of recovery, you know, there's different workshops and talking groups and, you know, my my um, care coordinators and my counsellors that really saved my life. You know, I learned that so many people, I feel so desperately sorry for other people with bipolar where their moods can fluctuate, you know, 20 times a day. Yeah. And here's the other shame of it, is that because essentially, and again, it's not to evangelise chasing these feelings because it's so catastrophic, you know, but effectively I tasted call it nirvana on that motorway again not to be evangelized um and because people out there with bipolar have experienced that they'll, they'll do anything to try and get back there but it's so catastrophic you know they're not working they don't have great relationships you know they're just uh, typically homeless because they're just trying to get back mm. to that that state of euphoria so you know they will have 30 cups of coffee a day they'll have needles to try and pinch their skin to keep them awake wow. you know these kind of things and it's just so catastrophic however you know again with great people around me by you know nurturing good daily habits especially sleep that's really important you know i've managed to somehow harness this positive energy and then you know really kind of the next chapter of the story is to you know talk about that five-year journey of, of recovery really because you know it led up to 2017 when i thought i've got to do something to share this story on a on a massive scale and does that lead us to your run <laughs> which takes you back to italy yeah so i mean you know we skipped forwards you know three or four years there but you know it certainly wasn't kind of a smooth road of, of recovery yeah. you know massive challenges you know moments of hypermania so not full scale mania but kind of a heightened elevated mood it took three years to get my medication right so what medication does is a typical thing for someone with bipolar um yeah Anti antidepressants or is it something like beta blockers or yeah what it? yeah it can be a whole mix you know from sodium valparate to quetiapine to alanzapine you know and they can be mood stabilizers they can be antipsychotic drugs right. um some can be um some people need it to actually elevate their mood somewhat to find that balance but for me it took uh, three years really? to get right and it was horrible and um 
Yeah, it was really horrible. You know, it's like it just felt like you were kind of, you know, I know they're pills, but when I when I think back to that that five year journey of recovery from 2012 to 2017, you know, it's like it feels like you're drinking this gloopy glug, you know, and you're and you're just trying to find what is that chemical mix which is going to work for me. And actually, speaking to you now, you know, I've been on one particular drug for the past uh, three years now, and I'm so grateful for it. Yeah. You know, I take it daily. I've got exactly the right dosage. Um, and again, again, using the F1 analogy, it's almost like I found the right dose. It's almost like building a cinder block, if you like, in your Formula One car, just to keep you from not going too fast. Mm. Um, and and the other thing I've, I've done throughout that time is to give everybody permission to tell me that, you know, Dan, you do seem like you're talking a bit fast. I know I do that anyway. How but do you take that? I'll take it well now, you know, and there's one day on the adventure, which we'll get to, which was defining because I had to accept when my mind was running away with me again, you know, but again, a Formula One driver, you're, n- you're never going to go places if you don't listen to the people around you. So, you know, everybody, you know, if they're expressing concerns or doubts, it's coming from a place of love, you know, like they want the best for me and, you know, none more so than my mom and Georgie and my family and I love them to bits. Um, in terms of like friendship circles, did everyone know about your your the struggles you were having yeah just kept within the family and your wife no that's, uh, i'm so glad you asked that question because um basically you know i had 2012 and then from january 2013 onwards when i wanted to be happy again namely for my family even more so than me really i just wanted to be happy for the people around me i saw no point in trying to hide anything i've been through you know, it's harder almost to hide anything. You know, I'd always been really expressive as a person, you know, so trying to hide any of this just seemed far too exhausting. So that's really where the journey into mental health and public speaking and campaigning came from because I recognised three amazing things started to happen every time I spoke about my story. I felt lighter, just like we're doing now, every time I share my story. Um, I build an amazing dream team of people who have my back. You know, you're now included in this, Jamie. <laughs> you know, and the third amazing thing was that nine times out of ten, when I spoke about my struggles, it gave permission for other people to share their struggles. Mm. And so I knew I had to do something with that. So, you know, throughout 2013, 14, 15, 16, you know, really started to share it on different stages. And it just started with friends, barbecues and dinner, din- you know, dinner evenings or whatever. And then it just got, just developed from there, really. What was the reaction of the people you were talking to? Emotive, powerful. Yeah. Um, optimistic hopeful you know and and that's the that's the kind of i'm hoping you guys have picked up on this but you know i do live do now live with this you know amazing sense of gratitude for the life i'm lucky enough to live and you know i think one of my sort of uh, one of my outcomes from the talks is you know when when your suffering can find meaning it can almost cease to become suffering Mm. you know you know this more than anyone um you know so i'm just so passionate about what i do and you know for all the reasons i just mentioned so in terms of the talks sharing your story with uh, other people who are suffering with bipolar or was it in companies or where were you doing this? Yeah, it's a mix of um, yeah, corporate organisations, um, festivals, NHS trusts, uh, schools and one or two universities in there as well. Um, you know, and I think most people will get me into... In fact, I've had a pretty creative licence. You know, they've just heard my story and want me to come in and share it. Mm. You know, but I couldn't be more passionate about tangible outcomes that I think can help anybody. And we can come to that because, you know, leading up to 2017, um, I knew I had to do something on a big scale to share my story. And um, I had to kind of take a pause from the public speaking because I decided I wanted to celebrate this five-year journey of recovery. I wanted to create a huge project to share my story on a massive scale, to thank all the people that have supported me and to raise money for the campaign against living miserably, who I freaking love. Um, So I couldn't think of a better way to do that. And I can see you're smiling now. um, Than by returning to Italy, 
but this time I was going to run 1,250 miles, solo and self-supported, from the Coliseum all the way back to the London Eye. And incredible. we, we freaking smashed it. The whole idea behind the running, was there a background to you that, you know, you did a lot of running beforehand and it was kind of a, an automatic kind of thing you wanted to go and do? Or did, was this just the, this, I don't know, the gesture you thought would like have the most impact? Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, the, the second part is more right. You know, the whole adventure was driven by, again, social impacts, but doing it the right way this time. Mm. Um, and in terms of identifying myself as a runner beforehand, I, I, I didn't really, I would, I'd, I would never have considered myself a runner. Mm. Um, I had done the London Marathon in 2008. That's a runner. Yeah, well... <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. But I was playing a lot of lacrosse, you know, for university. I qualified as a skiing instructor in 2011 as well. Yeah, pretty pretty sporty. Yeah, Yeah, my whole sort of background before all of this is sports development. So, you know, I just love getting people together, getting, you know, kind of community sponsorship, you know, yeah, get, get making feel, people feel part of something, all that stuff. So I'd always always been really sporty. Um, but the number one thing I had to do was give myself enough time, 12 months basically, to get myself in the best shape physically. But certainly the only way that this was going to succeed if I really prioritised my mental well-being. Yeah. And I had to nurture those great habits over the course of those 12 months to get myself in the best place mentally, <clears throat> you know, to go out there and smash this thing. And what I would say is that I built up an amazing, you know, dream team behind the scenes. You know, yeah, I was the one out there, you know, putting one foot in front of the other, but there's no way I could have done it you know without the amazing people that supported me who were these people georgie my mother my family my best mates uh, different people who just tracked my journey um i've got to give a shout out to the s tribe um so dave cornthwaite's built up this amazing community of supportive people to go on to do amazing things so i'm part of the s tribe and ambassador for them um you know so amazing people who just believed in what i wanted to d- deliver the team at calm were incredible uh, mika stones was the head of marketing at london sport who believes in what i was doing so she became sort of my marketing you know guru um you know, and then I had my WhatsApp threads, um, which I gave I gave regular updates twice a day to, um, you know, those yeah, just loved ones really. I had about fifteen people there that I promised I would update them daily. Right. And I've got to tell you, Jamie, it was like being in an oil painting for sixty five days. It was majestic. Did you ever have any moments where? you felt this was going to break you or were you always confident you were going to complete it? What was it like? Yeah, uh, basically I went into the whole thing with like this mindset of what is the best that could happen. And, you know, I painted this vision. I'm massive on visualisation, right? So over the course of that year leading up to the adventure, the amount of times I flew over the whole route on Google Earth was unbelievable. So I visualized that route so much, um, particularly, you know, those five days running over the Alps because that was game changing. Um, You know, so I went into the whole thing with that really positive mindset. And I've got to tell you, I didn't have one negative interaction from start to finish. I received nothing but generosity from the Italian, the Swiss and the French. Um, Amazing gestures of goodwill with people just reaching out to me to support the journey. Um, And I I can share some of the highlights, but the whole thing, it was just majestic. And... uh, what I would love to talk about is on day 16 because there was one defining moment that I put the whole um, adventure in jeopardy. You know, I felt uh, I felt so confident men- uh, physically and mentally going into the whole thing. You know, I started on the 25th of August with that amazing sunrise coming through the Colosseum, winding my way up, averaging 20 miles a day through, you know, climbing out of Rome, um, up through Tuscany, Siena. Um, and then I, sort of I reached the spine of Italy where you've got to cross over to central Italy to then go up to the Alps. And on day 16, I woke up to five separate messages from family and friends saying, Dan, we're really worried about you. You know, you're going too fast. You're running 28 miles a day already. Um, you know, your daily videos are waiting. You know, they're just not even making sense. And it wasn't easy to take, but they, they were you, right. Did they make sense though? 
Sorry? To you, did they make sense, those videos? And did yeah. You you were, going to, were you aware you were doing too much, or was it just... I, I had to be reminded right. that I was going way too fast. Do you think that's a thing in general, in life, that you have to be reminded? Um, I think now I've, I'm doing a lot better. Um, you can recognise them yourself. Yeah, I think ever since that day on the adventure in 2017, I haven't really had anybody else telling me, Dan, you know, we're a bit worried right. about you, so... Yeah, I like to think that. Yeah, you know, I've, learned, okay. I've learned a lot of lessons. But, and did, um, did you slow down? Did you then... I did. Drop it down to yeah. 27 miles a day? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, I felt like I was being really looked after when I was out there. Yeah. And, you know, there's a few things you couldn't have written. Like, two of my best mates were originally coming out to join me in the, in the Alps for a couple of days. and To run alongside. Yeah, yeah to, nice. well, cycle. They were being a bit lazy, to be honest. <laughs> Jason, Just Dexter, you heard the, that. Fiat Uno. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> on the bikes. Exactly. But they, I think it was like two days before the adventure, they changed their flights and said, actually, we fancy a bit of Tuscany. We're coming out to see you and we, we, you know, we'll just let you know when we're coming out. On the same day where I realised I was hypermanic, on the same day where I realised I needed to drop the mileage, I needed medication and I needed to talk about that chapter because if I wasn't vocalising it, then, you know, I was never going to get through it just by myself. On that same day, Jason and Dexter, the day before, said we're coming out tomorrow brilliant and i'm almost in tears thinking about it because you know they're like my brothers yeah, yeah you know i needed them and they were there so, so it must give you a huge lift oh man and a push to carry on yeah wow yeah so we just we, you know we just dropped the mileage you know we just you know i slept more i ate as much what as were you sleeping things. were you staying in hostels and hotels or yeah tents or what were you doing yeah i had a mix of stuff so i was wild camping you know 15 nights yeah. so i slept in airbnbs i slept in convents with these nuns i slept Lovely. in farms yeah. the best one i've got to share was was that all planned I, mind, no, or were you just like trying to find it en route yeah i only really planned a day ahead of, at a time right. you know and I, in fact the only place i booked in advance of the adventure was on night one you know i wanted reassurance that there was a bed for the night um which there was, but apart from that, I just took it, took it daily. It was, it was epic. Um, but the best one was where, um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I typically, you know, have an idea of where I wanted to finish every day. Yeah. Wake up with that gratitude. You know, I have my routines, loads of water, hydration. Obviously, the heat was pretty relentless in Tuscany. But there was this one day where I arrived in this place and there was, there was nowhere cheap to stay. There was no accommodation. There was no Airbnbs. And the cheapest place was like 50 euros. And I was like, no, I'm all right. You know, I've gone wild camp. So I put my head torch on, go down this track, see these little stables down the end of a farmer's track. So I went down there, did the walk around. There was loads of hay. Slept under the stars pretty much. It was, it was it was amazing. I loved it. And then the next morning, 5 a.m. alarm to get going. And I saw the farmer coming down the track. And I swear he had a shotgun in the back of his oh <laughs> little truck. But I had this kind of translated Italian text saying, this is what I'm doing. And then he paid me. He gave me 30 euros. Oh, wow. I know. So not only did I from say... The, from uh, almost a shotgun to 30 euros. Exactly. And... Um, Again, just a you know amazing sign that I was being looked after when I was out there, and you know over the Alps, up through France, and then uh, five days on the home leg when I crossed the Channel, up through Sussex, and then Kent, and you know running into London, not too, not too far from here, and then 28th of August, I had 160 people waiting for me at the London Eye. Incredible. The red, white, and blue was out. Georgie sprays me with champagne. Amazing. Unbelievable. What an adventure! What an adventure! And then, do you have a? Is there a, like a come down after such a huge high? What was it like after um, the weeks and months after that? Yeah, that's realise you've got to slow down with this. I'm just trying to pack it. Huge accomplishment for you. Yeah, um, in your journey, I think. uh, Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, you know because Rome to Home was driven by 
you know, the outcome. You know, I raised 15,000 for Calm, right. 2,000 pounds for the Snow Sports Charity. Um, you know, it's driven by that social impact. So what I did promise myself I'd do, and, you know, when I started at the Snow Sports Charity back in 2012, it was almost like I was, I was kind of, I crossed that finish line. And that's kind of quite a dangerous mindset. Mm. So actually, I treated the London Eye as the start of a whole new chapter for me you know so that's really where the public speaking really started to kick in Um, you know 2018 was incredible for me in terms of you know taking this message and collaborating just like this to another level and um, yeah it was just it was the start of a brand new chapter for me now you know I'm 35 and you know I've got my whole life ahead of me to (laughs) to uh, you know create all these projects and all the rest of it so again Rome Time was driven by that social impact and there wasn't really a come down because you know I, I promised myself that you know, this isn't a finish line moment. It's a it's, new start. It's a new start. Amazing. And that, and that brings us on to what you've been doing for the last year or so with your talks and Dan Keeley, the speaker. Yeah. And yeah. your little projects and you've got your own podcast on the go. And Yeah, no, it's amazing. And, you know, I, honestly, guys, listen, if you listen to this, I could not be more passionate about... Uh, what I'm doing right now with with Jamie like this is what I was born to do you know and whether it's me as a speaker or this new social enterprise I've created I'm I'm dedicating my life to two things it's to inspire and empower the UK to speak on the suffering so that together we can show future generations how it's done and as long as I'm talking listening creating and collaborating I'm happy. Yeah. You know, how we do that, that's the exciting stuff because I have no idea where this adventure is going to take yeah, us. Yeah. But this adventure is live right now. And if you're listening to these words, you're, you're part of my dream team. You're on this adventure with us. And, you know, we're here, we're lean, we've got our backpacks, we're on this adventure and it continues. I can't wait to see where it takes us. Mm. Um, you know, so there's, there's me as a public speaker and I couldn't be more passionate about that. Long may it continue. Um, but halfway through 2018, I realized that so many people wanted a bit more. They wanted the tangibles and the takeaways. And the thing which pains me is there's still so many people who just don't know where to look to get the support they need. And I believe everybody should have, whether it's a life coach or a counselor or a therapist, but I think we should all have somebody who we can regularly talk to. And so I had to set up a social enterprise to be the home of all my creative projects and the signposting and all that stuff. Um, so are we okay, UK? was born on the 28th of October 2018 exactly one year on from home to home and uh, again you know talking listening creating collaborating and here we are so are we okay it's your that's your baby now isn't it? that's where you're putting all your, uh, all your yeah. passion into yeah and it's basically everything you know I've got me as a speaker and it's basically everything else I'm up to and you know I think you, you can't help but do what we do and you know naturally you come across and people gravitate towards you who just want to help that mission Mm. Um, you know but it is a collaborative movement and you know there's no competition I just want to celebrate what's already working I want to be that voice that in fact somebody said you know it sounds like Red Bull in in terms of inspiring you know using the power of inspiration and that is true and I think if that can be the home of tangibly empowering the UK to speak up then happy days and I really can't wait to see where it takes us where would you like it to take you if you know let's ask that cliche yeah you see in five years kind of thing what, what would be ideal situation i was actually speaking to somebody yesterday about this and you know somebody said what would be your what would, what would be the absolute dream outcome for are we okay and then what and then what would be a dream project so the actual outcome which i would love is to get this is to reach a culture by let's say 2050 where we have and this might sound nuts a zero suicide culture because zero is the only number we can truly aim for. And I think we can do it. I think we've got everything we we need in the UK to achieve a society with that zero suicide culture. Well, I have to believe that. But 
in terms of how do we achieve that is to ensure that every single person, all 66.6 million of us, have the courage, the support, and the safe space to speak up yeah. when we're suffering, whether that's in the workplace or whether that's in the community, in schools, the NHS, or individually. Because there are so, you know, we know the waiting times on the NHS, we get it. You know, it's, it's not great right now, but there are so many people this afternoon that could help you listener to speak up about whatever you're going through right now for me i've got two life coaches i've got two mentors and i've got a counselor on standby if i need them yeah. you know so it's so important and you know what i like to do with my talks is, is kind of ask everybody in the room to put their hands up if they've been to the dentist in the past 12 months uh, you know roughly how much they've spent call it 40 quid and and then at the end you know i typically ask people who has a life coach or who has, um, you know, spent 40 quid on seeing a counsellor over the past 12 months. It's minimal. Yeah. You know, so we prioritise our teeth and our mental hygiene over our mental health so often. And, yeah, yeah. You know, I, 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 honestly, I could be on this podcast all afternoon. That's a, very <laughs> good That's a very good point. You're right. It doesn't cost much to see a therapist. Is there any tips you'd have on finding that initial voice when you need to speak to someone yeah i mean you know everybody needs different um professionals around them at different times i do believe that everybody should have a life coach because that's general day-to-day living who's the person we want to become and that coach can help you to become that person you know much quicker and easier than if you're trying to do it yourself so i think everybody by default should have a life coach i really believe that i think it is the future of preventative mental well-being but obviously counseling and therapy has has still absolutely got its play its part you know 12 men a day are still taking their life you know and you know we need it you know i'm sure that i'm going to need counseling and therapy as we move yeah. forward oh, I'm the same. Yeah. you know exactly exactly and it should be aspirational yeah. it should be it should be celebrated and in terms of finding those people i can't recommend uh, two resources more than any other you've got the life coach directory and you've got the counseling directory and that's spearheaded by the team from happenful magazine and you know you've got all the charities out there i'm going to be celebrating everybody on my uh, on are we okay obviously because you know i want to shine a light on where you can find these resources yeah but certainly the life coach directory and the counseling directory is a really good place to start i use the counseling directory and it's, it's amazing there we go Ben, you're an inspiring <laughs> man. It's like, I love talking to you. And guys, I've got to say, apologies for speaking too fast, but you know, I'm just all about making the most of these opportunities, celebrating what Jamie's doing with this. I love this podcast. I'm a huge fan. And you know, Jamie, just keep doing what you're doing because it's so important. No, you keep doing what you're doing. It's incredible. Thank you so much, Dan, for coming on the show. And uh, yeah, brilliant. Thank you, Dan. Cheers. Thanks again to the show sponsor, Mojave's, who produce footwear for time well spent. Check out mojaves.com to see their products and you can use the code MANTALK with no space or capitals to get 10% off. If you're struggling with your mental health, please reach out to someone you know, your GP or a charity such as Calm or the Samaritans. Help is out there. Thanks again for listening and take care.